Good evening. Thank you all for being here this evening. Just a couple of quick announcements. Does everybody have a notebook? If you were not here last week, we did put in the interpretation and the application updates, and Sarah will have both notebooks and updates for you if you need them. And one other announcement. We we're halfway through um, this particular study. I wanted you to, if it wasn't clear in the beginning, this is not something that we do when we sit down before the Lord in the morning and we're doing our devotional time. Or if this was a course on spiritual disciplines, this would not be introduced. We'd be talking about solitude, silence, prayer, Bible reading, fasting. This is a method. It's a method that you can use that tries to bridge the gap between that original audience and the original author and where we are today for perhaps a richer, fuller understanding of what's going on in scripture. So it's a method, not necessarily a Bible study. So I hope that that, that makes sense for everybody. Okay, great. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this evening. Thank you that you brought us together. We're here in your name and we're here to glorify you. We want to thank you that scholars have gone before us and put together these methods. Because Father, as we begin to understand the world of the Bible and where we are and see that there are connections, it really brings us into a deeper and fuller relationship with you. This is the word you gave us. This is the revelation. There's so much to learn. You're just a well that just never has a bottom. And Father, we don't want this to be an academic pursuit. Our hope is that when it is done and we approach our study this way, that we will love you more deeply. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about biblical interpretation. So yes, tonight we're in the weeds. And the key question is, what does the text mean? Gordon Fee is a Bible scholar, and he made this statement, which I think is brilliant in its simplicity. And it says, a text cannot mean what it could never have meant for the original readers. And this brings us to something called author's intent versus reader response. Reader response is a critical theory that stresses the importance of the role of the reader in constructing the meaning of a work of literature. The reader gives meaning to the text through their prior knowledge and personal experiences. Now think about that. Meaning is reduced to the boundaries of my knowledge and my experience. Do you see a problem here? I suggest this is quite limiting. How do we grow beyond our own experience? And here's the danger. I can give meaning to a text that was never intended by the author because a text cannot mean what it could never have meant for its original readers. Let me give you a personal example. Romans 8.28 is a verse that I use often as a young Christian to encourage people in tough situations. We all know this verse, don't we? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. 
Here's the thing. In written response, I get to define a key term in this verse that isn't defined. What we, don't we know by reading this verse? What's not disclosed? The audience? Things. Things. Do we know? Yes. Okay, that's a great point too. Yeah. These are all the kind of things that we're going to learn through our process. You know what I don't know here? I don't know God's purpose. See, my intentions in all this are good. And I think I'm honoring God by what I'm doing. Because I believe I'm stating what I think is God's purpose. Well, about 30 years ago, I sent this verse to a dear friend whose child was diagnosed with cancer. God heals, doesn't he? So of course he'll heal in this situation. God's purposes are good, and I'm defining good. My thinking is that God, who has power over sickness and disease, naturally wants to heal my friend's child. But without much effort, all I had to do was read the next verse in which the inspired author completes the thought by telling me what God's purpose is. Would somebody with a microphone be willing to read that? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Thank you. So God's purpose for his people, those who love him, is to become like his son. God plainly reveals his good purpose, whereas I, through the lens of my limited knowledge and experience, I defined what I thought good was. You know what? This is a rookie mistake. That's what we do. My intention was to encourage my friend, but you know what I didn't know at the time? A text cannot mean what it could never have meant for its original readers. So rather than reader response, what we're trying to do is interpretation, we're interested in the author's intent. Here's where our task of, remember the word exegesis continues? And that's on our, in our notebook on page five. Week one, we talked about exegesis. And remember, it's the careful, systematic study of the scripture to discover the original intended meaning. Have you ever heard the word meaning so many times? What we're doing has meaning. And if you happen to be looking on page five of your notebook, do you recognize one of the authors Who's, who said, gave us that definition? Do you see the name there? Gordon Fee, yes. Now, this is the truth. When I send a verse to someone, I now look at the literary context. Do you remember we talked about that last week? Reading the passages that surround my passage? Because you know what I understand now? A text cannot mean what it could never have meant to the original audience. Did I make my point? Okay, great, okay. So interpretation, we're looking at three key tasks. In your notebook on page 14, they're in the yellow box. So tonight, we're gonna to go through some steps and some thoughts, but here's really what we're doing in three steps. We're looking for the intended meaning of the scripture, and we're gonna build a bridge 
between the biblical audience and us. And then we're going to determine the theological principle. Big term, theological principle, but we'll discuss that so many times tonight, you'll understand what it means when we leave. So before reviewing the steps to interpreting, let's go over some of the useful tools. The last two weeks we've talked about literary genre, but we only really mentioned it. So tonight let's talk about it. So in your notebook on page 13, we have seven categories of literary genre. Now, granted, when, when I wake up in the morning and I decide I'm gonna sit before the Lord, I, I don't go through all these questions. But they may become second nature to you after a while. And believe it or not, these little tidbits of information really make that time and understanding richer. So let's take a look at the first one, historical narrative. The authors wrote about specific historical events to convey their main ideas. The key question is, why did the author include the event? That's the key question. Take a look at this. See, this is a Bible that doesn't have notes or cross-references. It's the text of the Bible. There it is. That's it. It doesn't contain the history of humanity or Israel or even the church. What is in here is written by inspired men. God wants us to know it. So when we're looking at an event, why do they include that event? Think of John. John tells us in the gospel, I really couldn't put everything in here that Jesus did because there's not enough books to contain what he did. So what do you think he did? He was careful in what he chose to put in that gospel to make his point. And you know what his point was? To believe that Jesus is the son of God. These writers are not, I don't know why we learned that these writers were uneducated and didn't know what they were doing. Let me just tell you something. You're reading a book of very intentional authors who want you to know what they want you to know. So the key question is why pick this particular event? That's what we ask when we look at the narrative. We also want to take a look at the characters. The characters are important. And when you have the time to do a character study, it will really surprise you. It'll surprise you maybe what your differences are, or like tonight we're gonna to look at the Pharisees. We might be surprised at our similarities. And the books that have contained most of the historical narrative are Genesis through Esther. So look, when you're in the Old Testament, by the time you get to the book of Esther, you have covered creation all the way through the Persian Empire. Did you know that? And they're right there in order for you, okay? In the New Testament, it's the Gospels. What are the Gospels? They're biography. They're writing about a real person at a real time among other people with real things happening. Acts. So these are the books that contain most of our historical narrative. Law. Law is the second uh, genre. It's embedded in much of the Old Testament narrative, particularly Exodus through Deuteronomy. Do you know Deuteronomy means second law? It's the second time the Ten Commandments are listed. Most of Deuteronomy is law. We see the Ten Commandments first listed in Exodus. And what is the book between Exodus and Deuteronomy? Leviticus. And Leviticus is the law. Here's the point of the law. It's tied into the covenant relationship between God and the nation of Israel. So think about that context you have now when you're reading law. Poetry. 
The use of verse or figurative language to express with meaning and symbolism. We're gonna look for the central theme. Now in poetry, let's think of the Psalms. If you open up to Psalm 13, you're gonna read a person who's really struggling. How long, O oh Lord? How long? How long till I hear from you? This person is going down, is depressed. But somewhere along the way, he changes his tune and he begins to change and he looks up to the Lord. And in that time, what happens is he's filled with joy and peace. I think it's six verses. We go through that much emotion. You can look at those six verses. What is the central theme? Maybe you can't control the circumstances around you. But when you look to the Lord, that's your joy. This is what the psalmists do for us. So our poetry, our Job, an interesting, I don't know if you know this, but Job is considered to have lived during the time of Genesis. It's probably one of the oldest books in scripture. And most of the um, information in Job's or the writing of the genre is poetry, as are the Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Sol Solomon. Prophecy. Now, we might all be familiar with the idea that they, divide, they delivered divine messages from God to the people, foretelling what God would do in response to human choices. So let's say you've decided you wanted to read either Isaiah or Jeremiah. So let me tell you a little bit about the prophets. Look for their call to repentance. And they're usually calling people back to the Lord from idolatry. First thing is the call to repentance. The next thing they're looking for is they're going to tell you what will happen if you do not respond. And it's judgment. But true to our Lord, there's also the message of hope and restoration. So if we go to Jeremiah, Jeremiah was a prophet who lived during the time of the Babylonian exile. This is his homeland. He loves it. And he knows. He knows that it's going to be invaded and taken over. But you know what his message is? It's something we've all heard before. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you hope in the future. You know, what's he talking about? He's talking about the 70 years later when they're going to be restored before they even go fully in. So prophets typically in their foretelling mode are calling to repentance, telling you what the judgment will be, and offering restoration and hope. But prophets do something else too. And you'll see here, what they also do is they provide instruction, comfort, correction, and exhortation both to the readers of the time and to us. Do you know what? Do you ever hear somebody say they have a gift of prophecy? That doesn't necessarily mean that they can foretell the future. It means they speak the truth. So they foretell as well as foretell. They speak the truth. Which is why they weren't so popular. And remember, even Peter tells us, they in a sense were the scripture of the Old Testament because God inspired them as he does our work. Now, there's something called apocalyptic literature. So, when we're thinking about doing this method, we need to know when we're in Revelation. It is symbolic and dramatic writing about events that have been hidden, particularly with regard to the end times. So we don't have to interpret the dragon literally. There is a lot going on. Some of the thinking behind this is, is do you know where John was when he wrote Revelation? 
He was exactly, Patmos, he was in exile within the Roman Empire. So some of the thinking is that some of the symbolism was known by the readers of the time, but it was also to be kept hidden. Well, we're not the readers of those times. So we'll probably do a lot of research if we're in the Revelation. Wisdom literature. I love this definition. Concise statements of moral and practical truths, often showing the consequences of certain choices and behaviors. So if I decide to trust in the Lord, not lean on my own understanding, and all my ways acknowledge him, do you know what the result is? He will direct my paths. Wisdom literature. Gospels contain both narrative and parables. The Gospels wrote quite a bit of narrative, and if you go to step one under literary genre, all the same rules apply. Why did the Gospel writers put this event in there? Spoiler alert, just so you know, all four of the Gospel writers wrote those Gospels because they want everybody to read them to know Jesus Christ was the Lord. No mystery to it. They were out, they were preaching the gospel orally. Think about it. They thought Jesus was going to come back in their time. And as they began to age, they thought, we got to get this written down. And the purpose of the gospels, you, one great thing about learning the, being in the gospel, you know what the intent of the author was. They want you to say, and who do you say I am? They want you to say, you were the Christ. That's what they're doing. But there's another type of genre within the Gospels, and that's parables. Parables are brief, fictional stories used as examples from everyday life to illustrate spiritual truths. So if you maybe have a family member or a friend who might be in some kind of turmoil because an adult child no longer communicates with them, they're gone, would you bring the story of the prodigal son to them as if this actually happened and the Lord really brought them back? I think the spiritual truth is when we do turn back to God, the arms are wide open. But what about somebody who's been ill for a long time, like the man who was ill for 38 years? Jesus really did walk up to that man, really did say to him, do you want to be healed, and healed him. So that's what we're trying to really bring about in this kind of class. You know, think about how we use scripture with other people because if, if it comes across incorrectly, they might have a false expectation or understanding who God is or what he does. So that's why we want to handle it carefully. Parables are fiction, and usually there's a spiritual truth. Narrative really happened, and there's a reason it's there. The epistles or the letters. Now, they are not theological treatises, but they certainly contain theology. Look at Romans. Romans is a marvelous letter filled with theology. But you know what they're dealing with? Problems and questions their recipients faced at the time. They are, the, Paul doesn't sit down or Jude or James or Peter or John thinking, we are writing scripture. We are writing theological statements. Things are going on in the church. And just like the Old Testament, you see so many of the prophets calling people back from idolatry. You know what's going on in the New Testament? Start to see the theme in the letters. False teaching. If you want to see a New Testament person, writer, get angry, bring in the false teachers. Paul will say, 
they come up to him. Listen, these people are pre- preaching Christ and at a game. You know what Paul says? Are they telling the truth? That's fine. These people are, are, are putting you down. It's in Philippians. They're putting you down. Are they preaching Christ? That's fine. But John, you know, sweet John, when he finds out there's false teaching going on, close your home. Don't let them in. They don't want those false teachers. So they're writing to specific things going on, real people at real times. When Paul's writing to the Corinthians, um, fellas, ladies, we got to rethink marriage and personal relationships now that you're in Christ. The things you were doing at your pagan temples and what you think are okay is not. And notice when he starts Corinthians, you know what he does? Before we do anything, there is so much discord and disunity, we got to get on the, same, on the track. They're talking about real things going on. Jude, Jude will tell you, I started writing because I wanted to talk about the faith, but I got to correct the problems that are going on. So the letters are all about that. It just turns out that today there are magnificent theological uh, pieces that we can use. They tell us the implications of our faith. Look at it this way. The gospels, once you believe what the gospel declares, Jesus Christ is Lord, you know what the epistles help us with? What does that mean? What are the implications? Because they're written to believers. Now here's a little suggestion. And um, you can certainly do what you want to do here. But if you are going to, not in your devotional time, but you know what I want to study? I want to study um, chapter 3 of Philippians. It's a letter. What do you do when you get a letter in the mail or or email? What do you do? Personal letters coming. Suppose it's two or three pages. What do you do? Yes, see who it's from, yes. So now it's a letter, somebody, and then you open it. What do you do with it? You read it all the way through, right? You don't go, I think I'm just going to read the end. I think I'm going to read the second and the third paragraph and put it down. We don't do that, right? Honestly, if you can, read it from the beginning to end. Don't worry about all the method yet. Just read it from beginning to end. Savor it. Oh, I've been, it's a letter from Jude. I've been waiting for this. Or I've been waiting for something from John. And just see. It's a wonderful way to really get a feel for what's going on. So there are the seven main genres that we're going to talk about. How does this help in the method? Well, hopefully different ways. We're not going to interpret a parable the same way we do narrative. We're not going to interpret a a psalm the same way we would a prophecy. So that's the idea there. So that's study number one, tool number one. Study tool number two is right in our scripture. It's the notes, Bible study notes. And you'll notice in a lot of the Bible study, they have these entries, such as, preaching to a tough crowd, or uh, joy in Philippians, or who were the Pharisees, or let's talk about Samaria. So what you have in a study Bible are commentary. Commentary are scholars trying to open up or explain some of the differences in the culture, the differences in the history, what may be going on. So right there in your study Bible, you have yet another tool like you do with your cross-references. This happens to be for Malachi, Malachi 3.16. You could read Malachi 3.16, but if you take the time to read this, you're going to learn more about the crowd. And notice a whole new set of cross-references and other references to look at. Again, if it's your morning time, 
or evening time and you're sitting before the Lord, it's a different kind of thing that you're doing. Because once you get started in this, you're not really listening to the Lord. You're starting to, to gather information. But the next time you read Malachi, you're going to learn a lot more. So it makes sense. Here's the thing. Although these notes and these entries are in your Bible, they are not inspired. Okay? Written by scholars to help, but they're not inspired. So when I'm with a group and somebody says, I don't agree with that. Okay. That's fine. Because the commentators and the scholars are not perfect. And they're running within their own limitations and biases. So don't worry about it if it confuses you or you don't think, oh, I don't think that's right. You may be right. Because these are occurring all the time. So it's not inspired as, as scriptures itself. This brings us to the third tool. And this third tool, you know, I really wish that I could say to you tonight, this is the commentary series you need to, oh, this commentary series is fantastic. Here's the thing. They're series and they're written by several authors. Now, I do want to tell you something that might be new news. Not all the commentators are believers. Uh, first time I heard that, that was kind of shocking to me. But they're not. The Bible is so influential that it's something to study. You can have a career studying the Bible. I have a series at home that I bought 20 years ago uh, when I was in school, and I see that now. I opened up the, the book on Exodus. Do you know what I read? I read that the burning bush was some kind of um, star and sun uh, uh, sky event. Now, they never tell you scientifically what they think it is. They just tell you what it isn't. So that's why it's really kind of hard. Well, go get that series. So let me just show you a couple things. Last week, when Tammy talked to us about the online resources, that was very helpful. So on page 24 of the notebook, under interpretation, you'll see that the first entry is what we just talked about, study notes in your Bible. And remember, they are commentaries. So you have them right there in your hand. Under commentaries themselves, you'll see a website, www.challies.com. Let's say you're looking at a passage. This particular website will give you what they call the best commentaries for that particular book. And believe me, there are several series out there. Well, let me tell you a little bit about some of the scholastic commentaries. Um, are you a Greek scholar? I'm not. Are you a Hebrew scholar? I'm not. Uh, do you know all the history of interpretation and the, and the theologians? I don't. Sometimes I open those books and I spend a half hour reading the five things they say it doesn't say. Because, you know, these are works that are commissioned. They're professors. They're published. I start looking for the uh, summary just to, just to find a sentence or two that it does say. So, although scholastic sounds exciting, what if it's not relatable to you or understandable? It's, then it's not good, okay? So, that's one thing and to try to maybe uh, say, well, what might be the best commentaries? Last week when Tammy talked about the Enduring Word app, it takes about a minute to put that on your phone. Right at the bottom, it'll say commentaries, and then you just hit your passage and 
There's going to be a lot of reading, but that's a way in which you can do a commentary. Commentaries can be very expensive, and it's very, I cannot recommend one commentary on the whole Bible because there are 21 chapters in John. Here's one of the uh, many books. Five chapters in James. Books are this big. And that's one, and you have what? How many other books? 65 other books in this scripture? So here's what I would recommend. If you are interested and want to know a little bit about commentaries, and you're in something... Because here's what they do. They can really uh, confirm your, your, your study. We have some resources here in Charlotte called seminaries. And they're wonderful. They're, when you go in, they can't wait to help you. And students typically are not permitted to check out a research or, re or references. So they're there. About three months ago, I had to, um, well, I wanted to write uh, a lesson for a Bible study on, on a genealogy. So if I really got all the commentaries, I probably would have needed about eight to 10, which could have been, well, $40 a piece added up. And I probably only needed a sentence or two just to confirm certain things or to make uh, connections. Gordon Conwell and RTS could not have been more helpful. I pulled out the eight to 10 commentaries and my phone, t -t 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 done. So that, that is a way, to, and do you have to make an appointment? No. And there's always somebody there on staff willing to help you. So that's another thought. That all being said, I would like to show you a couple. When Pastor did Judges, he held this up. This is called the For You series, okay? They're nice and readable and understandable. Can I tell you something? I'm really not impressed if I pick up a book and the author didn't allow it to be readable or understandable. It's just not any use to me. So this is readable and understandable. Now, why did I pick up this book? Oh, excuse me. I picked up this book for two reasons. I have zero resources on judges, and I know Tim Keller's name. That's why I did it. Okay. Now, there's another series that I use called the NIV Application Commentary. Now, it doesn't matter if you have an ESV or an NLT or a King James Version. This just happened to be key to the NIV because there was about a 20-year period where the NIV was the book, right? And here's what's interesting about this one. Yes, it's readable. So every, now this is James. So all five chapters of James, verse by verse, will be in here. But here's how they do it, which I think is quite remarkable based on this method of study we're using. The first thing they're going to do is they're going to tell you the original meaning. The next thing they're going to tell you about those verses is bridging context. The original readers to us. And the last thing is application. So this is also very readable. You're not stumbling through Greek and Hebrew and theologians you've never heard of that you have to hear of when you're in school. So it's another one. So hopefully that helps. But let me just say this. We really do believe that if you have a study Bible and access to either online or one of these dictionaries, and another one of these tools, maybe to do a word study, you probably don't really need to have a commentary. But we, did, we wanted to at least address it for you at this time. Because in a sense, you really do have a commentary. One last thing. There's a big story. 
Now, if you had to be in the if you happen to be in the academy last um, semester, we went through September through um, November on that. But there you go. Those four topics. How does that help with what we're trying to do? Is your particular passage talking about the fall, creation, redemption, restoration? Let's say, for example, I'm looking at Genesis 12. What's Genesis 12? The call to Abraham. What is the call to Abraham? God Almighty is beginning to put his plan of redemption in, into effect. Who's Abraham? He's going to be the father of the fleshly channel from which the Savior comes. Restoration. The Jeremiah 29 verse that everybody loves. That's restoration. Why? Judah's going to be devastated by the Babylonians. They're going to destroy the walls. They're going to destroy the temple. Are they done? No. That's what Jeremiah 29 11 is about. God, God is restorer. He doesn't just restore in Revelation. God is who he is. So all through the Testaments and all through the covenants, God is who he is. So if you can just think about this, well, where does Luke fit in? Or, or, or where does Joshua fit in? Or where does Philippians fit in? Somewhere in this, you have the big story. Four words. Any questions? Okay. We are on to interpretation. Most of the information that we'll be sharing tonight came from this wonderful book called Journey into God's Word. So I just wanted, they did a great job. Our hope here is there's just mountains of information on how to interpret the Bible. And you could be in a class for three months at the graduate or undergraduate level. Our hope is we're offering you four main topics with steps that will allow you to do this for yourself and pretty much come up with the same result. So tonight, that's what we're going to do with interpretation. So study principle number one on page 13. What are we trying to do here? You've heard this before to determine what the author's intended meaning was to the original audience. That's what we're trying to do. That's our principle. What is interpretation? It's the action of explaining the meaning of something. That's simple. Now, we're gonna take a look at the steps. We came up with eight steps for interpreting. Do you remember about two weeks ago when we started this, we looked at Matthew 12, nine through 14? You may still have the text, but if you don't, don't worry. It's here for us. I'm wondering if there's some brave person out there who would be willing to read all of this because we're going to do our interpretation practice together on this passage. And what we're listening for are who are the main people and what's going on so that we can then break it down and go through our steps. Would somebody be willing to read that for us so you don't have to listen to me all night? We have a microphone anywhere? Do we have a microphone? Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, we're going to go through this together. Then I will be quiet. We want to give you about a half hour to spend at least 15 minutes working through your passage with those eight steps. And then we're going to give you time to talk tonight within your group and see how the progress is going. 
So we're going. This is our practice. Thank you so much. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Thank and you. they asked him, "Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath?" So that they might accuse him. He said to them, "Which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath." Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthily like the other. But the Pharisees went, on, went out and conspired against him how to, to destroy him. Thank you so much. First question, what's the literary genre? And you can look in your book. Narrative of what type? Biographical? Okay, which is the what? What is this from? Biographical is correct, narrative is correct, and it is a what? Gospel. So it's gospel narrative. Very good. Great. Okay, step one. You've heard step one before. I know you have. You've heard it last week and the week before. But here's the thing. Your curiosity and what you want to know about Scripture, probably a good place to start to do this process. So ask several questions of the content the why questions. Guess what? If you have that question, somebody else does too. Somebody else has thought about it, has answered it for you, or somebody you'll be sitting with might have that same question. The why questions. What does it mean question? Think open-ended questions. And if you have these on your other two worksheets from week one and two, great. Here are my questions of this. Why did Jesus answered the Pharisee's question with a question. Was there a reason he did that? Why did he choose to use sheep for an illustration? What exactly was he trying to convey with this illustration? Why did he choose to perform the miracle when he did? Why did the Pharisees respond to the miracle the way they did? Who are they? Who are the Pharisees? What do the Pharisees believe? So that, that's my first round of questions after, after reading this, the passage. The next step is logical. I want to answer as many as I can from the data I've been collecting. Cross-references, reading the introduction to the Bible, all the things we've been talking about all along, from my observations. Well, if I don't have the answers, I now know I can dig further by Bible study notes. Or maybe... The very question I might have, they might have a whole little section like they did about the audience in Malachi. Maybe. If not, I can take a look at the online commentaries on the Enduring app. Or maybe I do like commentaries and I happen to have one from a couple years ago on this particular book. Or maybe my Bible dictionary. But I want to try to answer as many as I can. It is not a problem if you don't have all the answers. You're asking good questions and you're collecting data as you can. Now, step three. Finally, we're getting to it. I need to write a couple of sentences reflecting what I think this passage meant to the original audience. And when I write those sentences, they're going to be in the past tense because that's where I'm at right now. So here's what I came up with. Jesus challenged the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath laws. By performing the miracle, he was claiming his authority to make this statement. That's what I think the original audience would have understood. They would have understood the challenge and why the miracle. 
Now, I'm going to list the significant differences between the original audience and today. And much of this you've already done in your observations and your backstory. But we're going to add something tonight. And if you look at your notebook on page 14, if you look at the steps to interpretation, you'll see there's a one to four, and then a one, and then a five. Okay, the one between the four and the five, I guess that was just a formatting issue. Just erase out the one, and that step considered the gap goes under step four. We're adding this to the differences. And what we're gonna look at this time is we're gonna look at the gap between the old and the new covenants, and we're gonna look at the theological differences between the old and the new covenant. That's gonna help us understand what they understand and what we understand. I think for this passage, it's a great time to really take a look at the Pharisees. They're characters in the narrative. And in the narrative, characters are important. I had two questions about them. Who are they? And what do they believe? Okay? First, honest. I have preconceived notions of who they were based on no research on my own. Only what I've been told. Is there more to them? I don't know. This is the value of the method that we're doing. I'm compelled to do the research. By simply referring to a Bible dictionary, easy to read, I learned a lot about the Pharisees, and I want to share it with you. And it's not even exhaustive. So here's, here's what I learned. Some of it you might go, mm-hmm. Others was quite surprising. First point, they controlled the synagogues and exercised great control over much of the population. Okay, I think I knew that. I didn't know this. They're members of the middle class, and they're businessmen. I thought they were members of the ruling class, and they were religious. Mm -mm. They were influential in changing Judaism from a religion of sacrifice to one of the law. How many times do you wonder, well, what happened to the sacrifices? Well, well the temple was destroyed. But what happened, even at that time? Well, they were beginning to turn the religion into one of the, of the law. Now, <clears throat> this next one floored me. I read it several times. You ready? They were the progressives of their day. Have you ever heard a sermon or anybody ever say that? They get the rap all the time for being the traditionalists. Get this, willing to adopt new ideas and adapt the law to the new situations. Hmm. But when we just read our passage, that's not quite what we saw, was it? It didn't happen when they were talking to Jesus. So I wonder if there's more going on here. They were strongly monotheistic, one God. Guess what? So are we. They accepted the Old Testament as authoritative. So do we. They had a firm belief in life beyond the grave and the resurrection of the body. So do we. And they understood this before Jesus ever taught or was raised from the dead. They were a missionary. Seeking the conversion of the Gentiles. Sounds a little bit like the Great Commission, doesn't it? Talk about connections that we're allowed to make when we study. Look at this. Who was commissioned by the Lord to take the gospel to the Gentiles? Paul. Who wrote about the resurrection of the body after, the, after death 
and the resurrection and death of Jesus Christ to the Corinthians. Who wrote about that? Paul was a member of what? The Pharisees. So he would have grown up understanding and believing all this. Do they become, are the characters becoming more real? That's our hope. Pharisees. They saw God as concerned with the life of a person without denying the individual was responsible for how he or she lived. So do we. That's the great tension, right? God's sovereignty and human responsibility. You know, we look at that as a marvelous, you know, tension that came out of the Reformation. Mm -mm. They were here before Jesus was here, and they already knew that about God. And here we go. They opposed Jesus because he refused to accept their interpretations of the oral law. So they were progressive, but only to a point. My, how we haven't changed as a race. So remember now, we're looking at step four, the differences between the original audience and us while considering the different covenants. So I have a question. Even though our passage is from Matthew, at this point in the narrative, which is chapter 12, has the new covenant been established yet? No. No. We're in the New Testament, New Testament covenant, but it hasn't been established yet. So let's look at the differences because we are the new covenant people. The Pharisees were still under the old covenant. According to the Pharisees, it is unlawful to do any work on the Sabbath. And they claimed that their interpretation was authoritative. And remember, they saw themselves as the ones who could interpret the law. And the Old Testament was authoritative, but they knew how to interpret it. In the New Covenant, Jesus is the authority. And he explains what can be done on the Sabbath. So after we take a look at those differences, we then take a look at the similarities between the original audience and us. So in our example, we are like the Pharisees in this respect. We want to obey God. We accept the Old Testament as authoritative. We also have a commandment to keep the Sabbath holy. So remember, we just looked at some of the steps in study principle number one. We are trying to determine what was the author's intended meaning to the original audience. And we did that by writing our statements out in step three. Now we're going to test our statement. We're going to look at study principle number two, which is on page 14. We're going to determine what is the theological principle in the text. Oh, big fancy word, right? Let's see what that is. The theological principle functions as a bridge. That's what it does, spanning the differences between the original audience and us. That's what we're trying to do. What's the definition of the theological principle? It has meaning to both the biblical audience and Christians today. You know what the theological principle does? Has meaning to all believers in all times. So I'm gonna look at the, my sentence from step number three, what I thought it meant to the original audience, and I am going to try to identify a broader theological principle reflected in the text. But this time I'm gonna consider the similarities between me and the biblical audience because I have to think now of the function of a bridge. So here was that statement from step three. 
Jesus challenged the Pharisees' understanding of the Sabbath laws. By performing a miracle, he was claiming his authority to make this statement. Now, I'm going to go broader than this. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, not the Pharisees, and he taught it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, if you go back to that passage, 12, 9 through 14, Nowhere in that passage does Jesus say he's the Lord of the Sabbath. So where am I getting that? Better be from Scripture. So remember, step, one of the steps last week was remember the literary context? So what I would have done last week was I would have read before a couple of verses after to get a fuller meaning of what was going on. And in verse 8, right before our passage, Jesus said he was Lord of the Sabbath. Now, my next question is, step seven, how does this theological principle that I wrote fit in with the rest of the scripture? This is why step number one and two, an observation that you've done is so important. Literary context tells us a lot, the before and after. Now, again, our passage started in Matthew 12, nine. I'm only going back three, three passages here, six, seven, and eight verses. And here's what he says. I tell you, this is Jesus. There is one here who is even greater than the temple. He's talking to the Pharisees now. But you would not have condemned those who aren't guilty if you knew, hold on, the meaning of scripture. He's challenging the authoritative interpreters of scripture. You're not interpreting the Old Testament right that which you claim as authoritative. That's what he's telling them. Here's what he says. God is saying this. I want you to be merciful. I don't want your sacrifices. For I, the Son of Man, am master even of the Sabbath. So from observation week two, I know that I can take these and just simply look at the cross-references. Here's what I find out. Takes me right to the Old Testament. Would somebody please read that? So I discover, thank you, simply by reading before and after a few verses from my passage, you know what Jesus was actually doing in Matthew 12, 7? Quoting the Old Testament. Matthew 6, 6. He's quoting the Old Testament to the Pharisees, which according to the Pharisees is authoritative. Everything's deliberate. Do you see what he's doing? Okay. So I then do this. I look at the notes at the bottom of the page, the commentary, and I do that for even these verses, and I discover something that really surprised me. This is again... at. NLT, at the bottom, footnote, the Pharisees' view of the Sabbath was unscriptural since it broke the deeper principle, principles apply to all believers in all times, of mercy. Of mercy. You know, we we might have people in our families or people that we know, they just struggle with that Old Testament God, don't they? as if only in the new covenant mercy came in. 
the deeper meaning of mercy. So we're on to something here. Remember, we're not just doing this for intellectual um, exercise. We're trying to really get to know our God and to be able to use it. So we're seeing something here. Okay. A principle applies to all believers in all times. So therefore, my statement from step number six, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, not the Pharisees, and he taught it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. I think I'm incorrect. Especially if I'm interpreting Jesus' statement as a new idea about the Sabbath. Rather, and this matters, it's a correction to the Pharisees' unscriptural interpretation. Now, to be honest, I want to tell you the process I had with this. When I chose this passage, the one in Matthew, two weeks ago, here's why I did it. I thought it was a great example of a story shift. I know that was two weeks ago. Let me remind you what that is. When you're reading something and you see a major shift going on, I thought, well, this one's great. It starts out with the Pharisees simply wanting to trick Jesus uh, by a question, and five verses later, they want to kill him. I thought, oh, what, what, what a great thing to show as a shift. But when I applied this method, and that's what I used, my preconceived idea that Jesus was introducing a revolutionary new covenant concept that upset the Pharisees, I discovered I was wrong. Here, Jesus was correcting their interpretation of a law which led to the misrepresentation of God Almighty. Even in the old covenant, God, God wants us to be merciful. He doesn't want our sacrifices. Remember, we're made in his image, right? He wants us to know him which is more important than burnt offerings. For me, this helps. Oh, no, 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 no. The same thing mattered to God in the Old Testament as the New Testament. Not a law that you can't do anything when someone's suffering or someone needs you or any kind of goodness. That never was the Old Testament principle. I was wrong. And I brought all my notions about the Pharisees with me when I did this. And just by going through these eight steps and not even going beyond, other than the Pharisees, my study Bible, look at what the notes showed me. So now I'm going to write out my theological principle using present tense verbs. And this is actually the interpretive statement. We've gone from what we thought it meant. We took a look at the people. We took a look at what we thought they would believe based on the covenant they were in. We had some tools to let us learn a little bit more about them. And you have done your observation work for the last two weeks, so we're bringing all that in. We're bringing cultural and historical from last week, and tonight we're bringing theological. You have all this together. So now I'm going to write what I think is the interpretive statement. According to Scripture, not according to the New Covenant, not only for the people who are under the New Covenant, but according to the whole of Scripture, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. God never changed. Mercy always meant something to the God. It trumped, it was the principle, over any kind of law and its little effects. Does it make sense what we're doing? Do you see why we're doing it? Okay. Now, in interpretation, you can see here that the theological principle is pretty important. So let's review the criteria for formulating these principles. Now, I have them listed for you here at the, uh, on page 14. 
Hopefully if, now I know we went through this whole example, but maybe if we list these five out and look at them, they may help us to see what we're looking for. The first thing we're gonna look at is the principle should be reflected in the text. So if I'm giving you this great statement and you're looking at the five verses I, I gave you and you're like, that, that doesn't relate, it's useless. It needs to be reflected in the text. So do you think, according to the scripture, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath is reflected in the text? Do you think that's why Jesus used the illustration of the sheep? Do you think that's why he healed the man? Do you think that's what our text shows? That would be the first question. Did it meet that test? If it's something that you know and you're interested in and you're trying to force it onto the text, then you're wasting your time. You have to kind of let the text and your research help you get to the point. So it needs to be reflected in the text. If I read your statement and I read your text or your passage, oh, okay, I see it. The second thing is the principle should be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. So do you think the principle should be, according to scripture, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath only if someone needs to be healed? Is that what that passage was telling me? No. Okay. So you see, not a specific situation. Three, the principle should not be bound to one particular culture. According to the scripture, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath only if you are an American Christian. That's what that says. Certainly, we are not first century Jewish people. Certainly, we are not first century Pharisees. We're not any of that. Yet, the principle of mercy still stands today like it did then. Number four, the principle should correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture. And that's where our cross-references were golden because they brought us right to the Old Testament and we realized that Jesus was quoting the Old Testament. So we know that it does span the covenants. And the principle should be relevant to both the biblical audience and us. Was Jesus only speaking to the Pharisees? Was he speaking only to the man that he healed? Was he speaking to only us, New Covenant Christians? No, he was speaking to all of the above. That's what you're trying to get when you're looking at your passage. Okay, your turn. We're going to practice. So what we're going to do, do you have your, your passages uh, that you've chosen, Luke, Joshua, and uh, the Philippians? Okay, all right, if you go to page 22 of your notebook, exactly what we just talked about, here they are, all the, all the questions that we just discovered and talked about. Now, there's not a lot of room to write here. So if you go to page 35 in your, in your notebook, there's lots of blank pages if you wanna write on them. I'm gonna ask you to take about 15 minutes working with your passage, working through these questions, Go back if you've done your observation work, pick up what you've done, use it, and to try to see if you could write that, what you think it meant to the original audience, a broader statement, and hopefully if you can get to the theological principle. Just see if you can do that. That's okay, just work through the steps. Yes. Yes. Some pages from last week. And then, but, but tonight what we're going to do after that is take 15 minutes to sit with your table, discuss it, talk about it. What did you see? This was hard. I didn't understand that. Just some, take some time to talk about it together. We're not going to share 
your observations or your interpretations this week. Next week in application, we're going for it, okay? So is anybody so totally confused that, Kathy, I need to ask you a couple of questions? Okay, we're hoping we're reducing this method into steps that make sense to you. And remember, your curiosity, your questions matter, because if you have them, other people do. And we're hoping that the tools we're showing you will help you to answer those questions. Sound, sound like fun? Okay, I'll be back in about 15 minutes and then we'll, we'll go from there. Thank you. I know 15 minutes is not a lot of time to come up with your interpretive statement. But I do wanna tell you something. Kudos to all of you in this room. What you're doing here, this book that we're drawing this from, is a book that was written for those who uh, are in a church setting. It's taken from a textbook that's larger than this dictionary that's taught in seminaries. This is what you're doing. I graduated from Gordon-Commel 15 years ago, and what I told you tonight was the truth. I did not know all about the Pharisees until I did this tonight, this week, and prepared. I had no idea what was really going on in Matthew 12 until I did this. It is ongoing. You will continue to learn. So do not be discouraged if you're thinking, I, I, I don't quite get it all. I'm missing some steps. It's, it's, we've offered this method. You'll get more and more comfortable with it. You're going to learn more and more about Scripture if this is what you want to do, and it will be a lifelong pursuit. So I say kudos to you for sitting here and doing in four weeks what seminarians do in three months. Take that into account too, okay? So take some time to talk to each other and maybe just um, having some kind of discussion within your group might bring about some ideas or thoughts about how to get to this point. Any questions? Okay. That was a fast half hour. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. It's wonderful listening to all this conversation. I also want to encourage you to think about this. Remember, what we're doing is a full method called the inductive Bible method. It's employed by community Bible study. It's employed by Bible study fellowship. Our church, the women's Bible studies, Tuesday morning and Wednesday night. You are doing what the curriculum writers do who produce the material for those Bible studies. It's the same method. So kudos to you. Now remember, in this whole method of inductive study, we're doing three things. Week one and week two, we were looking at what does the text say? Tonight, we're looking at what does the text mean? And the components are to find that original intended meaning, drawing or building a bridge between the original audience and us, and determining the principle that goes across the time of the church and the time of scripture. All believers for all time. We answer tonight, what does the text mean? So that we can determine the third step. What does the text mean to me? Next week, Tammy will discuss application. And then we let the transformation begin. So let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight. And Father, I pray that everyone here leaves tonight encouraged. I pray that the enemy 
can in no way discourage them and make them think that they are not capable of doing what you will enable them to do. No tapes from the past saying they can't do this. Father, they seek you. And even your word says, transformation begins by the renewal of our mind. Father, the spirit lives in each one of us, the same one who inspired this wonderful work of scripture. So Father, we seek that synergy to bring about a deeper knowledge and love for you. Because what do you say? The greatest commandment is to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Father, let this be a beginning of something, of a method that they will use over their lifetime as they look to your word. There will be times when they'll just want to sit with you, times when they're going to just sit still and feel your encouragement, and times when they're going to open up their books and their resources and dig a little deeper. So in the name of Jesus, we ask that you will enable them and encourage them to do this. We hope this is pleasing to you. And I do pray that you will protect them and bring them home safely tonight and look forward to being with them again next week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.